Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday <laughs> oh, to you. you. <laughs> Happy birthday, dear white women. Happy birthday to you. Yay. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So Sarah, what comes to mind when you think four years presidential term, perhaps? Yeah, no, that's not where my brain went. My brain totally <laughs> went to high school, college, life cycles, like that sort of like my time living in, in Japan and a lot right. of life cycles like that. Okay, fine. Well, regardless, we've got a new one for you because this week marks the four year anniversary of the Dear White Woman podcast. Woo! Yay! <laughs> From those first few episodes released all together on April 15th, 2019, which also marked the first and last time we released multiple episodes on the same day, <laughs> to now, you know, it's been quite the ride and quite the adventure. And so this year, in order to kick off year five of the podcast, which seems completely, <laughs> Sarah, just mind was blown, literally. You know, we thought we'd devote an entire shorter episode to talking not only about the past four years, but what we have in store for the future. Because you didn't think we'd just end with four, did you? Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps model and normalize conversations about race and racism so we can help more white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and Misasha. And now, here we go. So, Sarah, whenever we do speaking engagements, we talk about the start of this podcast. But can you recap that for our newer listeners who may not want to go all the way back to episode one? You know that I actually figured you were going to ask me something like this, and I went back to listen to episode one, which is like eight minutes long. And I'm like, wow, we were little podcast babies then. <laughs> me, Sasha, you and I have been best friends for 25 years, right? We're both biracial, Japanese immigrant parent and white parent, and met at the HAPA, the Half Asian People's Association meeting, right? When being biracial, since then, we floated in so many different circles. And I know that our timing, her divine cosmic timing aligned, finally, after so many years of doing so many other projects and work and everything, where we were basically having all of our best friend conversations behind the scenes about our hopes, dreams, and fears for our kids. I'm married to my white Canadian husband. My two girls are in middle school and, and present as white. You're married to a black man. Your very multiracial black Japanese and white boys are seen by the world as black. And we were really talking about your worries about your boys leaving the house and not coming home based solely on the color of their skin. And you know, then we went and talked about how my terrible fashion sense was. And like, we just talk about all of these things, right? But those really meaningful realities about your family life and our concerns about the injustices for people out there in our society were not being reflected in the circle of white friends that we were able to float in undetected, right? Because we're biracial, people sort of welcomed us in and, and there was no feeling about us being, you know, anything other than just part of the white, white group. And so I think you and I decided in between your lawyering and your amateur historian stuff and my life coach training and my positive psychology uh, like interests, we really wanted to bring all of these layers of conversation public and that we would have like five listeners and that we were going to just be happy. And we would have, I know we said at the time we were going to have at least 10 years worth of episodes. So here we are four years in starting year five, and it has totally blown my mind. But I'm really glad to say that, by the way, we have over 310,000 
downloads of our show. Amazing. I check that for you too. Thanks. So we've expanded beyond our initial goals, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> is that the answer that you were looking for? Yeah. All right. I love awesome. it. Awesome. Because I just think it's amazing that at the foundation, we met at a racial identity conversation and we're doing this, you know, living in different states, you know, with different families and still having these deep and meaningful. So I, I appreciate you. So I have a question for you then. How do you think since that time in April 2019, when we thought that we were going to launch this thing, how has, how has the podcast evolved for you over the past four years? Was there a real turning point for you? Yeah. Well, I love that you went back and listened to episode one because I have not listened to episode one. Our um, mics have gotten better since then. <laughs> I'm sure. You know, I think at the beginning, we were really worried about getting it right which I think as we've evolved as humans, right, we've realized that there is no right here. We're just, I think we're concerned about doing, right? Doing and being and living how we believe and kind of living out loud in that way. So for me, it's really evolved from sort of a, like, here are the facts, right? And here's what we think about the facts. And we'll share experiences of people's lives in their own words, right? Through the interviews to like, let's have a conversation about why this is important, right? And I it really feel like it has changed from more analytical or sort of, you know, the law and history and psychology sort of shoved together in more like lecture style to like a real conversation and modeling those conversations in our own voices, which I think is is really, really important. And if I had to pick one turning point, I would say the Atlanta spa shootings. And I feel like this might be the same for you. Mostly I know this because you say this in our speaking engagements. So I'm just going to piggyback right off of that. But I, I think that the episodes that we recorded after that, notably the one that we released right after that, and then the ones in May of that year, were probably the, some of the most authentic episodes that we've ever had. Because it was about being Asian in this country. It was about white supremacy. It was about visibility and invisibility. But it was about us as biracial Asian women as well. And so I think that we were telling our own story in those episodes. And that's why I think those were so important. And I feel like we have taken that fire that we had in those episodes and really translated into, into a lot of other spheres like civics, where, you know, there isn't a lot of natural fire, let's just say. <laughs> so, but yeah, you know, so I, I really appreciate you asking that question because it's been quite a journey for us and for me personally, I think, in terms of how do I use my voice? So I really love that. Thanks for sharing that. Well, I want to ask you now about this past year, because if you think about the trajectory of our years, right, which is sort of tax day to tax day, right, which I, oh. you know makes it easy to remember <laughs> at least, right? File your taxes and bam, you get a new year like summary of Dear White Women. But this year included our summer episodes around our book right? A ton of amazing interviews and a full arc, you know, starting at the start of this year, 2023, regarding civics and democracy. So given all those things, what one thing, if you had to name one, was the most surprising thing that you learned, either through an episode or through an interview or through a combination of both? Mm, I love this question. You joke, which was not a joke, that civics really don't have their own sense of fire. I learned a lot about how laws get made and how to actually actively engage with our democracy through the episodes in our most recent arc. But they were not like 
my favorite episodes. <laughs> like they were what? more sensual <laughs> and I learned a lot, right? I think they're worth listening to. But I think as with a lot of this work, I find that when you find a personal point of entry, it can be the most mind blowing. And from that perspective, I really want to highlight the interview we had with Candace Taylor of the Overground Railroad. I had no idea. That was like, as the pandemic restrictions were lifting, we're all starting to think about traveling. We're, you know, getting back on the road. And for the first time in my life, I learned about sundown towns where people of color were not welcome. I learned about how dangerous it was to be a black traveler driving in your own private vehicle and that you would have to hang sometimes a chauffeur's cap behind the driver's seat in case you got pulled over so you can pretend that it's not your own vehicle. Like that there was a whole green book and a travel cottage travel industry dedicated to helping black people travel our country safely. And then when I talk about that personal entry, I was just recently home uh, visiting my mom in Long Island, total fluke from Plane Connections, which was a wonderful gift. But as I was driving down the Long Island Expressway, I remembered Candace telling us that Robert Moses, who built all this infrastructure for New York City and helped open up Jones Beach and all these popular beaches, purposely made the overpasses, the highway overpasses low enough that the city buses couldn't go under it so that the city buses could not transport people of color living in the city to the beaches of Long Island. And I just remember how my jaw dropped hearing that and learning that and how visible and invisible that discrimination was in the life that I had growing up. So I would say that was the most mind-blowing when I look back over the last year. But so I want to ask you the same question. What for you was the what kind of moment? <laughs> well, this is why I hate going after you in questions like this. <laughs> but I'm going to go back and talk about civics for just a second too, because I thought that I had understood a fair amount of how our democracy works. And especially coming from like a legal background, I thought I understood the role of, you know, even how the DAs operate. And I did not. Okay. So to be very clear, like law and order, as I know we talked about in that episode, does not show you, right, for like most TV shows, right, what a real DA does and how the role of the DA and our, you know, incarceration system, how those feed each other. So I think about even in the professions that we have, right, that and how much you don't know about the systems in place that work to uphold things like white supremacy. And obviously didn't learn that in law school, didn't learn that in any pro bono, you know, experience because I'm a civil litigator, right? And I think about if we could just keep asking why in our professions too, right? Like those questions are so important to finding out how things fit. And I'm sort of signaling to you because I want to add to that. Thank you for sharing that so far. And I'm going to come back to that question, obviously. Thank you for writing researching and writing so many of those episodes. Because I think when I said I didn't like them, I think it's because I really learned how little I knew and how almost like impossible to change it seemed. Like it seems so heavy and that it would take so many people to actually care to make a change. And that's what I meant by like, whoa, there's so many mechanisms going on that there are in so many layers of oppression and things that aren't working and, and that sort of stuff. But I agree with you on the DA that was mind blowing. Also learning about the unions, I thought was mind blowing. I didn't know that I would come out of that being so pro union, for example. So yeah, I thank you for your massive brain and your ability oh. to translate that into 
things that we can deliver, learn and share with everybody. I think you just called my head very large, which it is. Um, (laughs) We share that trait. That's why neither of us wear hats very often. Anybody know of a hat brand that looks cute for extra large women's heads? Please let us know. We're all ears. I appreciate you saying that, though. I I think one thing on that note that I will take away also from our civics arc is the role. We said it a lot on the podcast, but until we really dove into it in civics, I didn't fully appreciate the role of local government in our lives. And I think that we cannot look away from those elections, right? Because they seem tedious and, you know, I don't know who's running for city council. Like, what does a deputy mayor do? All those things. And I know, Sarah, for you in Denver, you just had a mayoral election where there were like a million candidates. But it is so, so important to understand it's not just every four years, right? That that's the election we should care about because all these elections play such a deep and pivotal role in not only our local governments, but, you know, the makeup of state Supreme Courts, for example, like what laws get upheld, because Wisconsin is going through that right now, you know, but and all of that leads to federal elections and who gets elected as president. I think we can't afford to not have time to look into all of these things on a local basis. I absolutely agree with you. Yeah. Okay. so back to your original question. It was a green book moment for me too, actually, when Candace was talking about the green book. And I remember reading in the green book, and this goes back to something that I like to talk about with the Bay Area, because I think people think that, you know, like New York, not in the South, right? But clear racism and discrimination at work there, right? In the overpass construction. California, not in the South, but we had several And by several, I mean a lot of sundown towns, including one that like my kids play soccer in regularly up in the Bay Area. And basically my hometown was that sundown town too. And I could see, once I knew that, I looked back growing up, right, in Pasadena. And we had things like the Valley Hunt Club, right, which from its very name, suggests that there's a certain type of person that's able to go to the Valley Hunt Club and not, let's say, my family, right? But there was a lot of that in Pasadena and Pasadena was largely settled by people coming from Chicago and that part of the country to avoid the cold winters. Right. So you think about it's not just the South. Right. And I think that was a huge reminder of how insidious and structural and systemic racism is throughout our country, right? We can't just look away and say like, oh, well, that's the South. It's not, it's everywhere, right? It's Long Island, it's Pasadena, it's so many places, including places that we live in today. So totally agree. that was my aha moment. Okay, so just a few more questions. And this one's kind of a like an existential theoretical question because it's my I know you question. love. I know you love those. Okay. <laughs> Maybe you should be a philosopher. <laughs> Who do you do this podcast for? Like, this is a lot of hours of work every week to turn out this product, you know, and it's not just what you hear, right? It's the social media side of it. It's like the interviewing, it's the coordination, it's all of it, right? And all of this is basically a labor of love for us, right? So who do you dedicate this to? Or, you know, to put it in our podcasting terms, like, what's your why, right? What's your why in doing this after four years? I'm asking myself why I didn't wear waterproof mascara because hearing you ask that question (laughs) brought tears to my eyes. I do it for you. I do it for, and it's multiple. So hear hear me out. 
for your husband who is brilliant and witty and sarcastic and so thoughtful and supportive and for your brilliant children because the systems are set up against them and I want them to lead thriving, amazing lives because they're amazing human beings. Oh, geez. And I do it for my kids, my white presenting neurodivergent, invisible disability, amazing kids who are 25% Japanese and who also have to live within systems that aren't necessarily created to help them thrive. And I do it for myself. I do it because I'm biracial. Through the, You talked about the Atlanta shootings. That recrystallized for me that I am not half of anything. I am both Japanese and white and that I can embrace my whole self. And because all of these interlocking systems of control, oppression, were things that I had been sort of pressured under to live with perfection and live with scarcity and live with competition and all of these unhealthy things that through the course of our four years so far, and I hope to continue this for a long time, but it's been good for me. I feel like I have found my voice. I have really like dismantled perfection in my life. I feel like I can see how intertwined these systems are. And it has just been so good for me because all of this anti-racism work is good for all of us. It's good for you. It's good for me. And it's good for all of us. So why? Because I still have hope that we can make it a better world for each of us. And importantly, for our kids. I can't believe I actually cried. What about you? Okay, well, first of all, I feel like this is now a full circle anniversary podcast episode because my question made you cry and I love you for that. And I feel like it's a true hallmark of a good episode too. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, predominantly is for that next generation, right? Like my kids, your kids, the kids who do not have a voice yet, the kids who are marching in Tennessee, right? The kids who are so angry that this is what they have inherited because we as adults have not been able to talk about this, have not been able to deal with this and are still trying to shield ourselves, right? We're not trying to shield our kids. Let's not make it about our kids. We're trying to shield ourselves from uncomfortable realities and from difference and from diversity. And I don't want our kids to have to sit here 30 years later, right? And be like, why did they do this to us? Why did they leave this for us? They know what other generations didn't acknowledge. So why didn't they fix it? And so I, I that is why I am so fired up to do this every week with you because I do it for me too. I do it for you. I do it for all of us because I know I say, all of us or none of us a lot. I'm probably going to say it again a couple of times in this podcast and throughout the next four years, but it really is. There is power in having your voice. And, and like you, I grew up in systems that largely told me I didn't have a voice and I believed it. I believed it for so long. And I think I'm angry at myself then for believing it, right? For believing that this was it, like this was all we can envision. This is how we need to live. And I feel like it's one of those things that you can't unsee, right? You can't unnotice. You can't stop asking once you start asking. So that's why I do it so that we don't leave for our kids something worse than we had so that because if you look at what is happening now, we are walking stuff back that was taken for granted when we were growing up because people before us fought for it. And like, if we're not fighting for this now, 
we are leaving worse for our kids. So that's why. I love that. Wow, that's powerful. Thank you. Thanks. All right. So we talked a lot about the past. We talked about our whys. So now let's talk about the vision, right? Where do you see this going from here? Like as we roll into year five, like more podcast, more speaking, more all the good stuff. I mean, I'm going to asterisk that there because as much as like, you know, talking about racism a lot can be good, right? I mean, I did just come back from two weeks off at the World Happiness Summit and not talking about it directly is also a nice break, but it was also part very much infused with all of those conversations. So you can't really escape talking about it because it's in part of everything that we do. I think as with all things regarding our progress, you and I have been incredible at communicating what we want to do. And so I think for as long as this both feels like the right thing to do, I see us growing consistently and steadily as we always have while holding space for those children, that next generation that we're raising under our own roofs to be as present and intentional with our energy for them as possible too. I do see us continuing the podcast because there's still no shortage of things to talk about. I think that we would potentially discuss changing cadence, maybe. We'll Mm -hmm. see. We'll talk about tweaking all this sort of stuff. But I also see us leaning into creating, I, I loved, even though I didn't love editing the book and revising, I really loved the process of writing it. Yeah. So I see us leaning into creating new formats of distributing information, like maybe a Substack to share, whether it's transcripts or additional knowledge and really get more impact. I find that I want to change away from this newsletter format that we have and really get into something that's just easier to create and have people follow. So Mm -hmm. look for Substack. Let us know if you like that or not. And you mentioned social media before. I see us building out enough social media presence, which I have been very lackluster at doing consistently because it has been free labor and we've had a lot of stuff going on. But I want to build it up to potentially have us write another book, maybe centered whether it's around our Asian experiences and identities or building that bridge between well-being and anti-racism. I feel like we have more theses and like ideas to push forward in this world and in this work. So I'm excited to work with you to crystallize that in another form of writing. And like you said, speaking. I mean, our interactive work the speaking gigs, the, the things that we do pretty regularly now online and in person is incredible because I think those moments where you see people and oftentimes because of our title, Dear White Women, like we get to see the aha moment where white people open their eyeballs and they're like, this is relevant to me. Like you can sort of see that their hearts and their brains have connected and they have felt moved to do something different. And I think that is worth it. So I would love to continue to expand that. And I think we're aligned on most of that. But what do you think? Any other yeah. thoughts on your, your end? <laughs> no, I love it. I think that, you know, this whole platform was built from the podcast. And I think that it stands to reason that the podcast, you know, and everything that we sort of talk about in the podcast and, and arcs that we do in the podcast are all sort of thought exercises for us, right? As we think about how do we further push these conversations out into the world, right? And so I think we started with audio, but visual, you know, interactive, like all of those are are really important ways in which I think we're going to be building in the future. So I am super excited and here for all of it. And finally, I know we both want to end with a huge thank you to our listeners, because if you're just tuning in now, or if you've been with us for the past four years or somewhere in between, we could not do this without you, because we need you to keep sharing these conversations within your spheres 
of people, of communities, of groups, and to keep doing intentional things every day to make the changes that we all need to make to further anti-racism in order to make this world better for that next generation. Because, and I obviously foreshadowed this, that I was going to say this again in this episode, it is fundamentally all of us or none of us. So thank you so very much. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list.